Well, it's now time for our, uh, for our time of preaching, so let me encourage you to take your Bible in whatever form you have it. I want you to go with me to John chapter 17, shift our thinking just a little bit. John chapter 17, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of Adult Ministries, and uh, I am just, uh, I, I'm so privileged to be one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you, Grace Church, for the privilege of being one of your pastors. It's an evidence of grace in my life and in, the, in my family's life, and so I just, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, thank you. It's a, real, it's a real privilege. So we're in, we're in John 17, okay? So let me, let me encourage you to do, uh, to do one, other, one other thing. There are hard copy notes just, out, just on that table there, or you can find them on the app. So you'll need that kind of our, uh, for our time through, uh, through God's Word today. So we're going to be in John 17, what is known as the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, for three weeks on Sunday morning. So it's going to be uh, helpful for you and for all of us to really kind of mark our place and do, uh, do the best we can. This is a unique passage. It's incredibly significant. I, I, have, to, I have to admit, just in my own study of it this week, I, 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 uh, I, I've, under, I, I've undervalued this passage of Scripture, if that were possible. I, I mean, I've just, it hasn't, hasn't had the esteem in my eyes that it should have. It's incredibly important. John 17 is a recorded prayer from Jesus. Uh, and so I, what I want us to do is kind of get a running start so that we can approach these chapters as best that we can. So just really quick, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, I want us to remember the setting of this chapter, the setting. So we've been in John's, the book of John for a while, but let's talk about the setting quickly. Where are we? So Jesus just finished instructing his disciples about the fact that he is soon to leave and to return to the Father. That's chapters 13 to 16. He, do, he is withdrawn from public ministry. He's in the what is just considered the upper room with his disciples on the eve of his, of his arrest, death, with his resurrection to follow three days later. So that's where we are. Interestingly, John's gospel is divided evenly into two halves, one through 12, and then 13 to the end, with over half of it being concerned about the final hours of Jesus' life. It's very unique. And so that's where we are. That's where we find ourselves. Second, I want us to consider the timing. The timing. Now, this is important because Jesus opens this prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. You see that right there in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. So Jesus opens up his prayer by saying, but by helping us understand that he knows what time it is. Now, I, I'm always asking myself what time it is. I don't, I don't wear a watch. It's on my phone somewhere. Um, but I usually find myself asking what time it is when I'm running late. Okay, so just creating some commonality here. Maybe that's you too. But Jesus knows exactly what time it is. And so this, this indication of time, your Bible may say hour, is a feature in John's gospel that indicates that divinely appointed moment for the world-transforming acts of the gospel to take place. The death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father of Jesus Christ. That, that weekend has arrived. Jesus knew that it wasn't time in chapter 2 at a friend's wedding. Jesus knew that it wasn't time in chapter 6 and 7 when he's at the feast and everyone wants to make him king. But now the hour has come. The reason for which he was born is here. Friends, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die and to rise and to ascend and to receive a crown. And all of that, that weekend is here. And in the mind of Jesus Christ, it is as sure as completed 
That's the timing. And so Jesus is going to pray this prayer. He's going to turn from instructing his disciples to praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples, which in the course of this prayer, in turn, he will pray for them and for us. And we'll see that over the next three weeks. Third, I want to consider the significance of this prayer, the significance. It's, it's, really, it's really hard to estimate how significant John chapter 17 is. Uh, it, it really, the significance lies in the one who's praying, uh, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, what would it, what would it be? Now, we know, we know that Jesus prayed because the four Gospels record him praying. And we know that he taught his disciples to pray because we have that model prayer in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6 and, in, and in, in the Gospel of Luke. But John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. So automatically, we realize that we have this privilege to see and to hear what, what it, as Jesus bears his heart before the Father on the eve of, of, of crisis and victory three days later. What's on his mind? Now, this kind of thinking is a great concern to us because as a church, we have no greater objective and no higher initiative than to understand and to know Jesus. So questions like, what is he like? What does he, what does he do? What does it mean to trust in him? When he prays, what does he sound like? What can I learn from it? These are the, these are the most important questions for us, and this chapter is going to help us do that. So with that stage set, let me, let me encourage you to stand as you're, as you're able. Let me encourage you to stand. And we're going to read the first five verses of this chapter, okay? The first five verses. So we're going to look at it in three sections over the next few weeks. Section one, Jesus prays for himself. Section two, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, the first, the first 12. And then Jesus prays for those who will come to believe in his word, the church. Okay, so here's what I want you to think in these first five verses. I want you to have in your mind on the eve of his, of, of his arrest and resurrection, or, or excuse me, his crucifixion, what is on Jesus' mind? What concerns him now? Let's pray. To, we're going to read together. Uh, starting here, let's read it together. Chapter 17, verse 1, the Bible says this. Let's read together. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray to you, the one who prayed for us, the one who intercedes for us now at God's right hand. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that we would leave today understanding what is your great concern, what continues to be your great concern, and what must be our great concern. And Lord, there are, there are as many concerns and anxieties and worries as there are people here. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us great grace to hear, shape, and form us in the likeness of Christ as a result. We pray, Jesus, as you will pray later in this chapter, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray these things in your great name. Amen. Amen. Take your seats, everybody. Thanks. Okay. So, I wonder if you were able to hear what concerns Jesus in the first five verses. I think the theme is fairly easy to discern. And what concerns Jesus on the eve of the world-transforming events of the crucifixion, resurrection, and then 40 days later, the ascension, is nothing less than the glory of God. His great concern is that he and the Father would be glorified. And so I tried to put this message into a sentence. You see it there on the top of your notes. The message in a sentence is this, like Jesus, the glory of God must be our main concern. Like Jesus, the glory of God must be our main concern. Uh, Of all the concerns we have, on top of all of them, it must be this concern. And I think we can get at this under three headings, and you see them there on your notes, and we'll, we'll work through them together. First, first, as it relates to glory, what Jesus is praying for here, first, friends, we see the glory desired, the glory desired. We see this in verses 1 and 4. Look with, look with me at verse 1. So Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, a posture of prayer and reverence, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So at this most significant moment of his life, the moment for which he came into the world, the moment where he, where he will substitute himself on the cross in the place of sinners like us, He will be buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, he will walk out of it. Just before his arrest and his trial, these world-transforming events, Jesus' desire is clear, his and the Father's mutual glorification. Father, glorify your Son, that the Son also may glorify you. So the question is, what, what is Jesus actually asking for? Well, he's making his petitions known to the Lord. He's doing exactly what what we are called to do, to to bring our requests to the Lord, to make them known. We have needs and desires and things we want to see happen, so we bring them to God. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And he is asking for nothing less than that through the shame and the pain and the agony of the cross, through through burial in a borrowed tomb, And through the glory of a resurrection and 40 days later, a return. It's this, the the time now, the time, the hour is here. And that hour is, we don't limit it just to his death. It's all of these events which we constitute as the good news of the gospel. Christ lived, he died, he rose again. And and as, as these things are happening, he says, Father, glorify us. May we look great. May, we be, may people recognize and rejoice in who we are and in what we have done. That's his prayer. And just by the way, it's a good reminder for us of the fact that um, in many ways, only Jesus can pray this prayer. I, I can't pray to, to the Father, glorify me as you glorify yourself. It just makes me squirm thinking about it. Now, I can pray, I can pray glorify, glorify yourself through me, through how I live, but only Jesus can pray glorify me, as he'll say in verse 5, alongside you. So, 
at least Jesus is affirming his own divinity, right? He's absolutely saying I'm equal with God because in Isaiah, the Lord says, I share my glory with nobody. And Jesus is saying, give me some. Share it. That's number one, the glory desired. Jesus desires the glory of God. And and, and, and in verse 4, he already says, I glorified you on earth. The glory of God has always been the focus. Recognizing and rejoicing in who his father is through his obedience and his perfect life. I have finished the work which you have given me to do, he says in verse 4. That's the glory desired. Now, what we need to know is not just what Jesus desires and prays, but why Jesus prays what he prays. Why does he do that? That's what we're going to answer in number two, the glory planned. The glory planned. The glory desired and the glory planned. So let me show you how things connect. So it's important to see the connection from verse one to verse two. All right, so just look right at the beginning of verse two. Your your Bible may say, as you have given, or your Bible may say, since you have given, or because you have given. So, so the idea is that Jesus, the basis for what Jesus prays in verse 1 is whatever is found in verse 2. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you because. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you just as. So Jesus says, do this because of this. Does that make sense? Verse 2 is the ground of verse 1. Okay, so we could just read it like this. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you since or because you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. What we learned is that what we learn here is that the glory is planned from before the foundation of the world. Paul would say in Ephesians 1, there was a plan for the father and you know one of the One of the interesting facts about this passage, particularly about the entire chapter, all of chapter 17, is that it really gives us this little glimpse. It's it's just a peek into this unique, one-of-a-kind, otherworldly relationship between the Father and the Son. Uh, Probably here, I mean, mean, verse 5, I'm just going to just indulge me. I'm going to get ahead of myself and then have to put the car back in reverse, okay? Verse verse 5 is a whole lot like verse 1, especially the first half. He's virtually asking for the same thing. Glorify me, glorify yourself, glorify me alongside you or with you. But the second half of verse 5 is different. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was... That's this little peak. That's, 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 my, that's, my, that's my small children just peeking through the door. Just, oh, can I come in? Is it safe? You know? Just this little peek into what things were like when the only thing was God. Evidently, there was glory and magnificence. How could it be otherwise He is all there was. So we get this picture. And verse 2 tells us that there's been this plan. There's been this. So not only is there glory within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit's not mentioned here, but he was all over chapters 13 to 16. Not only is there glory, but there's generosity. 
Do you notice how many times in verse 2? I want you to notice this. Notice these three words. Given, give, and given. Look at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. You see that there? Three references. So, what we learn is that the son from eternity past was given two things. Authority and believers. Authority and believers. First, authority. Verse 2, since or because you have given him authority over all flesh. All flesh is a way of saying every man, woman, and child. Every man, woman, and child. No exclusions. So the first thing to notice about the authority Jesus has been given is its expanse. It's comprehensive. Every man, woman, and child. Every single person who has ever lived, who will ever live, who lives now, is under the cosmic supremacy of Jesus Christ. I gladly announce to you that Jesus Christ is supreme over all earthly powers. He's not one among many. He's not one good option among others. He is singular and exclusive. This must be a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read this with you quickly. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. This is a vision Daniel was, Daniel was given. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, all flesh. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we need to look at all the events of the gospel and say, well, who else does that apply to? No American president, no Chinese emperor, no Roman Caesar or English king, and certainly not to me and you, Jesus. Friends, may we be glad in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. How would it change your life right now? You know, our worries and our anxieties, I'm learning this really fresh in my own life right now. I'm not supposed to carry them. I'm supposed to cast them. Like a kid coming home from school, just I'm, on Friday, I'm done with this book bag. Whoop, out of the way. Just hurl it off. And how, how would my life change now if I did everything I could to apply to that problem, that burden, the supremacy of Jesus, and the truth that he has the power to work all things together for my good? It may change things, at least. We know after his resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples and tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in eternity past, based upon the completion of the work of salvation, the Son was given universal authority. Second, he was given believers. He was given believers. You have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And what's this eternal life? He tells us in verse four, right in verse three, rather, right in the middle. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is found in one place, knowledge of the one true God. But Jesus was given a people from the Father. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and no one who comes to me I will cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes, 
on his own, singularly, individually, I will by no means cast out. What that means is that if you're hearing the word now and you recognize your sin against God, a very real moral guilt that you can't seem to get away from, cancel, do away with, it keeps waking you up at night and, you, and, and the word is convincing you that Christ lived, died, and rose again for you, you reach out to him just right there, right there. And you say, I trust you. Take my sin, I trust you. He'll say, all right. He won't cast you out. That's who Jesus is. This means that the Father gave a people to the Son to be their Savior and Lord so that in space and time they would come to believe in him for eternal life. And again, verse 3 is the clearest place for eternal life that we have. As believers, we must never forget that the dominant reality of our lives, friends, is the assurance that though we die, we will live. Though we die, we will live, and we will do so forever after the pattern of the firstborn Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel and what we are promised. So, the, so this is, that's the logic there. So Jesus prays what he prays because of what, he say, because of what is true in verse 2. Now, it's not, just, it's not just the glory desired and the glory planned, but it's also, number three, the glory restored. The glory restored. This is verse 5, my, my favorite verse, slowly becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So... I, I, I know next to, just, just being transparent, I, a uh, little confession here, I know next to nothing about cars or trucks or I drive a minivan, it's, it's the sliding doors are awesome, like I, but I don't know, I know where that button is, you know, like I, I know next to nothing, um, you know, but, but, but I, I do know that some of you are really into cars and some of you have even done something that I think is really neat, you've restored an old, an antique car. Or you know somebody who's done that? Well, I, I know a little, just a little bit about that because my dad, when I was younger, restored, he bought for really cheap and restored a 1970 Datsun Roadster. I'm looking at some of you that like cars, okay? Is that ringing any bells? A 1970 Datsun Roadster. I mean, I don't remember what it was like because I wasn't here. But, uh, you know, they were really, really, really cool. It, 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 and it, it's, so Datsun was Nissan before it was Nissan, okay? So it was burnt orange, it, it, it was a four-speed, not a five-speed. So it was just good for just kind of cruising around. It was so low to the ground, you could reach out and touch the road, okay? So, so, I, I, so I don't know much about cars. I, did, I was able to watch my dad do this and get to ride around with it and even drove it a little bit. But, but I do know enough to know that the whole point of a restoration is to return to what something previously was. And that's exactly what Jesus prays for in verse 5. He prays to return to how things were. He wants to go back. He longs for home. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. Let's stop. That's very similar to verse 1. Almost identical. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, the second half is different. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's... What was the world like before there was before the foundation, before there was time or matter or energy? When there was just God, there was there was a sharing of glory. There was there was there was the Father saying to the Son, "You're glorious. You are magnificent." And there was the Son saying to the Father, "Right back at you." And there was the Spirit confirming these things. This is what it was like. And so Jesus wants to go back. Well, who wouldn't want that? 
Who wouldn't want to be an un... Jesus, Jesus is consistently fa- saying through John, I've left the Father and I'm going to go back to the Father. He says in John 10, one of the most disturbing verses in the Bible, John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. The cross is not, he's not a helpless victim. He's a sovereign Lord every time. And he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down that I may take it up again. Cross and resurrection, cross and crown. This charge I received from my father, lockstep the whole way. Now, and so he left the father. He added to his divinity, humanity. And he wants to go back, but how will he return to the father now? Like Jesus isn't physically here on earth, right? How will he return now? Through the cross, on the place, uh, in our place for our sins, through the empty tomb, by ascension, return, ascending back into heaven, and coronation, he'll get his crown 40 days later. He will return to God, yes, as God, he was always that. But now, if you can imagine it, and if our hearts can be thrilled by it right now, Jesus returned to the Father as the God-man who defeated sin and death. And what's waiting for him when he returns back to the Father? He tells the disciples, keep looking, I'm gonna come back in the same way. What is waiting for Jesus, the victor over sin and death, when he goes back home? Not an altar, not a workbench, not a lectern, a throne. What do you do with a throne? Sit on it. Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, synonym for glory, on high. Friends, what what to occupy our vision of Jesus is an empty tomb and an occupied throne. That's the vision of Christ you must have. Settle for nothing less. The only time he'll stand up from that throne is when he comes back to get us. Unless we're already with him. So that is what Jesus is waiting for. Now, that's what Jesus received. I want us to apply to ourselves our main point. Our main point was this. Like Jesus, the glory of God must be the main concern of our lives. So lastly, friends, as we conclude, I want us to consider the concern we must have. Here's the concern we must have. The concern must be for God to be glorified. We must want our God glorified. The Bible says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now that must mean he should be praised at all times because someone's always seeing the sun or praised, praised in all, among all people at all times. We should pray our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. But it seems to me that the, be, the best way I could conclude this, this sermon is by saying, what does that mean? What does it actually mean to be individuals and husbands and, and, and wives and mothers and employees and grandparents and all the other, all the other, all the other roles we fill who, whose primary concern is the glory of God. I, I want to give you two words that I think this means. I think that it means for us to recognize who God is and to rejoice in who God is. To recognize who he is and to rejoice in who he is. To, 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 when, to recognize all that he is. So the glory of God 
is the outshining of his character. It's the beholding of his mercy and his love. When, when Moses prayed to the Lord, show me your glory, God hid him because he couldn't take it. And then, he, and then he said, I will pass before you and will proclaim to you my name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, recognizing who he is and then being glad about it. He is loving, and I'm so happy that he is. Because when I suffer, I can still say he's good. I love his mercy to poor, pitiful, deserves hell, me. I love his mercy. I love it. Look, I, uh, look at that love you're showing me. How great must you be? That's glorifying God. It's to recognize and to rejoice it, and we, and having a concern for it, is that everyone we know would do the same, from Tanzania to Des Moines. Every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. By the way, those people have been given to the Son. What's our job now? To bring them out with our evangelism and our outreach. To share Christ with confidence. This won't fail. It's Jesus. He's never failed a thing in his life, ever, and he never will. And this concern for recognizing and rejoicing in God's glory must, we, we, brothers and sisters, we will not escape it. We wouldn't want to, but we can't. It will be our dominant reality forever. Look at verse 24 of John 17. This is amazing. Look at verse 24. Jesus continuing to pray, and here he's praying for us right here in this room. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. He wants us with him. That they may behold my, what's the word? Glory that you have given me. When? Before the foundation of the world. So friends, we, we, need to, we need to make it our vocation to recognize and to rejoice in God's glory because it, it's gonna be the focus. So that's Jesus' prayer. I want you there. Now, here's how I want you to think about this. This very short life, this very, it's, it's very short, is an internship. It's the first job out of college for recognizing and rejoicing. We'll do it here forever. What's, what John 17 verse 24 isn't the afterlife, it is life. That is your life. Don't buy the lie that this is all there is. That is the life. And may, Lord, may the Lord hasten the day. May the Lord hasten the day. Now, Pastor Michael and I wanted to do our best to, to lead us to recognize and to rejoice in God's glory. So I, I'm going to ask you to stand. Would you indulge me? You can, I know you may have to take a second and put your stuff away there. That's okay. Just stand. And I'm going to pray for us, and the team is going to come back, and we're going to sing and help our, cell, help our hearts and our minds recognize and rejoice in who God is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're so kind to give us your word, and you're so kind to give us this very clear glimpse into what things are like, because it's, it's really our task to conform ourselves to reality. 
And, 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 and Lord, it's, it's so evident to me that for, the, for a pastor, the phrase is Sunday is always coming, and that's true. But, but, but for the flock and for the pastor included, Monday's always coming too. And so, Lord, I just pray that we've, we've heard something today that will bear a burden, that will give strength, that will encourage to share, just motivate and move and, and help us to be equipped to be people who recognize and rejoice in who you are and in what you've done. And so, Lord, now we have an opportunity to do that. So, Lord, would you, would you give us vocabulary now as we sing this song? Give us, give us, give us, give us, fill our sanctified imaginations with visions of a cross and a crown as we sing of Jesus and close out our service. So, Lord, help us now. We pray in his great name. Amen. Amen.